When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. What's up, Fitz? Uh, not too much. How are you doing, Cordelia? Good. So at our Monday meetings, we usually talk through our weekends and you and Becca always seem to have done something fun with your kids over the weekend and it seems like they love hanging out outside. What's your secret to that success? Oh, um, that is a it's, a, it's a really big question. Um, the biggest thing is we just do it. And it turns out kids like being outside. Kids like try, climbing trees. They like playing in the snow. They like doing all that. I just realized like the outdoors can be a lot of different things in the same day even. And so there's just times where you know, the kids just need to take their little matchbox cars and ride, you know, go around in the dirt instead of like trying to take them out on a hike or a, a mountain bike ride. And there's days where it's like, you just got to get hot chocolate at the lodge versus like doing 10 laps on the ski hill. I think it's just been a slow, steady progress to the point where it's like, you know, there's just give and take mm-hmm. on the whole thing. And, and it's led to a place where now, you know, Tep's skiing off the top of mountains and Wiley loves to go, you know, wants to go on the next river trip mm-hmm. all the time. And it it's just been a like a slow, steady dance. And I think that that's, you know, if, if I had to answer that question, that's how what I'd say. Mm-hmm. Is it sort of been this, like, get them outside, realize that they have their own ways of enjoying it, and, you know, let them do it that way. And, you know, press when you kind of need to a little bit, but just be prepared to kind of, like, step back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten into situations where you get worried that, you might be pushing them too far or past what they want to be doing outside? Um, like they look, they look to the adults to kind of be like, should I be nervous right now? Which is like both a good and a bad thing, right? Because you realize like on a level, they aren't totally sometimes aware of, of the situation of like, oh, this is a little more heads up than what it could be. And, and so they just, they really look towards us to be like, well, our mom and dad nervous right now. And, um, I, <laughs> I have a pretty high tolerance. The only only time I I the, you know it's funny we've been we've been river rafting 
And that's something that's been totally new to me with Mm -hmm. kids. And so I've had to learn and I'm in general kind of like a little bit of a weenie about the water. (laughs) And so that, that I totally will like get all like anxious and I'll be like, everyone out of this boat, like you're walking around this rapid and I'm doing it. And it, and, and I will get like, um, anxious ahead of time. Mm -hmm. That's, that's kind of the only, only time, but I think maybe sometimes I get more intellectually nervous like on a like less on a in a moment but kind of more like broadly. What do you mean by intellectually nervous? Well, I want my kids to be safe, right? Mm-hmm. And I realize that sometimes the things we're doing they are not totally safe. And I also think that's like part of learning, right? Is that, that real learning in life whether you're you know learning about other humans or learning about yourself, learning isn't safe. You know, if you if you do it on a on a level. It's like that you're going to be pushed intellectually. Sometimes you're going to be pushed physically, and I am cognizant that um, the outdoors are a powerful place, and and the things that we do with them, um, you know, whether it's just like that joy of like flying down a single track behind Tep, uh, it's awesome. And I realize like, oh, he's going to crash at some point, and so like, there's a side of me that's like that sort of just acknowledges that they're all going to crash at some point. And, and like, that's okay. Right. And like, that's part of life. And I think that's one of the most powerful teaching tools that the outdoors has to give. I am a parent. I love my kids. And I want them, you know, I want them to be safe. I don't want them to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same point, I, you know, it's like, I'm left with that of like, this is a really good tool for learning how to acknowledge risk, um, not accept it or accept it. And those are those are skills that you can take into life. Mm-hmm. And and it's just a powerful, powerful teaching tool for that. Yeah. Well, that brings us to today's story. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go climbing and we're headed for the Grand Teton. All right. Producer Ashley Langholtz has a story for us today about the risks and rewards of passing down a love of adventure. I'm Fitz Cahal. I'm Cordelia Zars. And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Our first like official date was a hike and we had to cross over the top of Eagle River Falls on a mossy wet log just above the falls, which sounds totally safe. And it was like a double date. So this other couple was with us and the girl from the other couple sat down on the side of the river and refused to cross and started crying. And my husband and I just crossed right over this log and no problem and went off into the woods. And that was kind of when I knew he was the one for me. This is Michelle Baker. She met her husband, John, in 1994 while she was home on summer break. She was in college in Utah, but spent that summer with her family in Anchorage. She and John hit it off right from the beginning. They were both from Alaska, went to the same church, and they both loved mountains. I thought he would fit into my life really well. 
That fall, Michelle returned to school in Utah, and John stayed in Alaska. By Thanksgiving, they were engaged. And they got married the following spring, and happily slept in the back of their Subaru on their honeymoon. John transferred to college in Utah. Together, they finished school and spent their free time road tripping and climbing around the desert. I remember one time we were in Red Rocks before we had kids, and we saw this family this couple climbing with, with their son who was six, seven, eight, something like that. And he was incredible. And we were like, oh my gosh, we so want to do that with our kids. When Michelle and John started a family of their own, they dreamt of a lifetime of outdoor adventures. When their first son was born in 2000, he got a family name and a mountain name. We named him after Mount St. Elias. So his name is Elias. That is the... Second tallest mountain in Alaska. We call him Eli, yeah, unless he's in trouble. (laughs) The mountain names continued with each of Michelle and John's kids. Two years later, Logan was born. Mount Logan is the tallest mountain in Canada, and it's right across the border from Mount St. Elias. And we loved that we had these two boys close together. And these two mountains they were named after were right by each other. And they were like big, strong, you know, like, like it was just symbolic to us. Next came McKinley. So she's named after Mount McKinley. And ironically, she is the smallest of our kids. And their youngest? His name required a little more work. So I was looking at names, looking at names. And there's a mountain that's close to Logan and St. Elias that's called Mount Lucania. And so I started looking into that. And I looked up like the meanings of Luca. And one of the meanings that I found was that he was a bringer of light. And I just thought that that was so beautiful. So he's not actually named Lucania. He's named Luca. But that's the mountain that he's named after. Michelle felt mountain names honored their family's geographic roots and also hoped it increased the odds the kids might grow up to love mountains too. Eager for adventure partners, Michelle and John had their kids in baby backpacks on the trail and at the crag before they could walk. I think the first purpose for getting them out there was totally selfish because that's what we wanted to do. (laughs) And, you know, it's much easier as a parent to be able to do the things you want to do if you can convince your kids that they want to do it too. (laughs) And how exactly do you do that? A lot of getting young kids to do things like that involves snacks. They're very willing to go, and they are very content to hang out at the crag if you just let them play. The kids learned to climb and rappel by age five or six, and the Baker family started looking like the family Michelle saw at Red Rocks a few years before. Michelle and her family live in Houston now but they spend a lot of their vacations in Utah and Northwest Wyoming in the Grand Teton National Park. Over the years, the jagged Teton Range became an easy place to meet extended family. Plus, the landscape offered adventures for everyone. The adults often took turns tackling the quiver of big summits in the area and tackling parenting duties. As the kids got older, they joined on day hikes and swimming in alpine lakes. In 2010, the family Teton trip raised the bar. John was like, we're going to take Eli up the Grand. He was nine. (laughs) The Grand Teton, often called the Grand, captivated John and Michelle. Standing at over 13,770 feet above sea level, it's the highest point in the Teton range. It's jagged and it's technical. 
Michelle and John both had summits under their belts and wanted to share that experience with their kids. John and Eli climbed the Grand with Michelle's dad and brother. They climbed six pitches via the Upper Exum Ridge, a popular 5-5 trad route. Although Eli was psyched, Michelle and John decided nine was perhaps too young for their liking. John felt he had to keep a constant watch on Eli and didn't always feel confident Eli could follow every pitch. Plus, they needed quite a bit of gear for the multi-day alpine climb, and Eli couldn't carry a large, heavy pack. John was carrying, like, a lot of stuff. And he also fell asleep on some of the belay ledges, so <laughs> that's more of a personality thing. That boy, can, he can fall asleep anywhere. Eli's climb sparked interest in Logan, Michelle and John's second son. But they decided to wait until Logan was older before attempting the grand. Logan's turn came around in 2015. He was 12. Here's Logan. So, like, I would always hear, like, stories about, like, Eli doing it. Like, oh, yeah, Eli, our son, he did it when he was nine, you know? And I'm like, well, I want to do it. You know, can't let him outshine me. (laughs) Michelle secured the climbing permits months in advance. Two teams. The first, Michelle, John, and Logan. The second, Michelle's brother, Jim, his 11-year-old daughter, Whitney, yes, named after Mount Whitney, and a family friend, Richard four adults, and two kids. The Baker family spent a lot of that summer training in Texas. Logan felt comfortable climbing and rappelling, but they practiced multi-pitch routes and cleaning trad gear. They worked on fitness and carried packs with weight. Michelle and John taught Logan about the route, the Upper Exum Ridge, the same route Eli climbed. My dad talked all about like the different pitches. There's the friction pitch, which is like two below the top or something. That's the one that stuck out the most to me, but there's the, also this crux point that he was very adamant about, and it was called like Wall Street, right? And it's basically the point of no return, where you're pretty much committed until the exit below the friction pitch. In mid-August, they packed up their SUV and headed northwest. Eli, McKinley, and Luca stayed with extended family in Utah, while the climbing team drove north to Wyoming. At the trailhead, the team distributed gear for the five-day climb. Under sunny skies, they left from the trailhead in the early afternoon. When you start, it's pretty gradual. I mean, you're going through forest, and it's really pretty. So you go through that foresty area pretty quickly, and then it starts getting pretty steep. The team stopped to redistribute some of the gear primarily taking weight out of Logan's pack. After almost four miles, they made it to their first camp, the platforms, 9,000 feet above sea level. So we were trying to get set up and everything before dark. Tucked in by talus and boulders, their first night went smoothly. They woke to overcast skies. Through a notch in a rock, they could see rain to the east. Did you have access to a weather forecast? Um, Yeah, I mean, we checked it before we left. Do you remember what it said? It was supposed to be like partly cloudy afternoon storms. It was like your typical Teton forecast. The rain shower stayed to the east. The team ate breakfast and packed up camp. About a mile and 500 feet later, they arrived at their second camp at an area called the Meadows. So we got up to the Meadows and left our stuff there and just took our summit packs. 
and went and summited the, the middle and the South Teton that morning. Climbing the middle and South Teton helped the team acclimatize, and the constant views of the Grand offered a mix of awe, excitement, and nerves. On day three, they left the Meadows camp mid-morning and hiked up to their third camp at the Lower Saddle at 11,600 feet. The team debated if they should go for the summit because of the nice weather. So we got up there and set up our tents and everything. It was like clear blue skies all day. Despite the good weather, they opted to stay at camp and rest. They played cards, took in the view, and talked with other people on the trail. They got an updated forecast from some of the other climbers. Possible morning storms. From where they were camped, the route to the summit is exposed, where you don't want to be if it's storming. They had another night on their permit, so they could wait and try the following day. But nothing guaranteed that forecast would be any better. And it would require a summit and the entire descent in one day. We ultimately decided that we were just going to get up super early and try to beat it. Day 4, Summit Day. The alarm went off around 3 a.m. After an evening of rest, spirits were high when they left camp. They hiked the first two hours quietly by headlamp, traversing along the ridge of the saddle. So as the sun starts coming up and we're looking off to the west toward Idaho, <laughs> we, uh, we can start to see some clouds like off in the distance. They reached their first goal and the start of the technical climb, Wall Street. As the sun rose higher in the sky and they climbed further up on the route, they could see dark, ominous clouds with gray streaks of rain below. We were already climbing. We had already gone up a couple of pitches by the time the sun was fully up and we could really see those clouds. And so we're like, okay, do we bail and go back the way we came? Or do we try to speed up and beat this? <laughs> And like looking at the pictures, there's like sun on us, but like behind us are these horrible dark clouds. <laughs> and so we're like, well, shoot. <laughs> the two rope teams discussed options and scenarios. At that point, those clouds were still pretty far away. So we're like, okay, we're just gonna move fast. It's gonna be quick. Michelle's brother, Jim, led Whitney and Richard up first. Then John led Michelle and Logan up. They moved up the mountain in two separate but supportive teams, close enough that the second team could lend ideas for holds or emotional support to the team above. They did this for a few hours. Here's Logan again. It kind of felt like the slanting like sidewalk up the side of the mountain, big drop on one side. And I remember seeing those, just these walls of rain clouds out in the distance. And I'm like, you know... That doesn't look too good. But I was trying to like rationalize. Oh, like, look, they're heading a different way. Like, we don't need to worry. Jim and his team had gone on ahead and John had started up behind him. Logan and I were, I was belaying John and we were just waiting on the sledge. And all of a sudden we just start getting this, like this super strong wind. And then we just start getting pelted with rain. Got my rain jacket and stuff on just fine. But, you know, it's kind of hard to put on pants with your uh, harness on and you're, like, clipped in into the anchor and stuff. So I just remember 
the biggest bummer for me was that I couldn't get my pants all the way over my butt, so my butt was just soaked. We're kind of huddled on this little belay ledge, and he's looking at me, and his eyes are like humongous. <laughs> like he's looking at me like, what, what do I do? Should I freak out now, <laughs> you know? And I'm looking back at him and I'm like, it's gonna be okay, it's okay. Let's get our reindeer on, you know, like that. Like, just trying to be like really like calm and like, this is no big deal, it's gonna be fine. <laughs> but <laughs> what I'm actually thinking is, oh dude, we're like screwed. <laughs> Michelle's mind jumped to stories of climbers caught in thunderstorms on the Grand. The things that captivated Michelle about the Grand, its prominence, its exposure, were the same things that made it very dangerous in a storm. I mean, I knew it was definite potential to be very bad. And, you know, I've been on the, in the mountains enough that I know that you don't want to be up there when there's like lightning. They climbed as fast as they could. The second team followed right on the heels of the first. The storm got stronger. There were flashes of lightning and no other teams in sight. Together at a lower belay ledge, Michelle and Logan tried to stay warm. The team was committed. They needed to get further up the mountain and either find shelter or get on the descent route. So we are just climbing in the rain. It's pouring down the rock. Absolutely pouring down the rock. And... This section is like a slab, and so it's supposed to be a lot of friction <laughs> climbing, which is obviously less friction when it's wet. And it was challenging to get up. We got to the top of the one pitch, and Jim was trying to belay Whitney up, and John is like trying to like push Whitney up from the bottom, you know, because she was she was really having a hard time, and it was just like. A little bit chaotic there. Michelle and Logan climbed and slipped their way up the friction pitch. At the top, Jim found a small ledge with an overhang, protected from some of the rain. When I got up to the belay station and my dad was like, hey, you know, like, we're going to tuck into this cave for a little bit. I was like relieved because at this point I was shivering. I was soaking wet and I was just in a terrible mood. Inside a cave about the size of a small kitchen table, all six of them sat side by side, holding their knees to their chests. Some rocks blocked the wind, others blocked the rain. They sat on their packs and ropes, hoping it would insulate them from the cold and maybe even a charge. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was completely sure that we were going to get struck by lightning. We got out these emergency blankets, you know, the ones that super thin, but they're like the uh, reflective material meant to like reflect your body heat back to you. We've carried those on every adventure for as long as I can remember and never thought about using them once. And then when we had to break them out, I was like, oh, so this is what they're for. Everybody's huddled under these blankets. Everybody's wet. We're all shivering. It's super loud because there's like thunder cracking and the wind is blowing like crazy and it's raining and it was pretty crazy. 
Wet and scared, the mood in the cave felt about as dark as the sky. More after the break. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Inside the cave, Michelle and John sat next to Logan and exchanged looks. There was not a lot of talking. There was a lot of praying. (laughs) And it was quite somber in the cave. I remember I a crushed up Twix that was like in the top of my backpack. And that's pretty much all I remember. Just being cold, eating that like crumbly, you know, broken Twix and just, you know, just waiting for the storm to pass. There was a lot of questions going through my mind, like how long is this storm gonna last? Are we gonna be up here all night? Do we have what we need to make it through the night without somebody like dying of hypothermia? Are we going to get struck by lightning and we won't even have to worry about if we're going to be up here all night? (laughs) Because we'll all be dead. Michelle looked over at Logan and saw tears rolling down his face. My parents say that I was praying pretty hard. And I don't specifically remember that, but I believe it looking back. Is this how I die? Already? (laughs) And then... I believe there were a couple biting remarks by me to my dad, like, how could you do this to us? (laughs) The big fear, of course, was that we had gotten our son into a situation where he was going to be injured or killed, and it would be our fault. And as a parent, having something happen to your kid is like the worst thing that can possibly happen. But to have it be your fault is like 10 times worse. You know, because you're then you'd be living with all this regret. And so that was what John and I were saying to each other. You know, what, what have we done? By early afternoon, the volume of the storm turned down. The rain lightened up. A weather window opened, but they couldn't know for how long. They knew that if they could get up a little higher, they could traverse around the side of the mountain and get on the descent. So we knew we had to go up to get off the mountain. (sighs) So that was a little scary. (laughs) Rattled but determined to keep moving, the teams got back on route. The sky completely cleared. The storm had passed. At three o'clock in the afternoon, it was beautiful. A couple pitches below the summit, they found the descent route. So then we're at this point where we're like, do we traverse around and rappel? 
or do we keep going and summit? Because we, did, we obviously didn't learn our lesson. <laughs> We're like praying to get off this mountain. Now is God going to like strike us dead because we didn't take the first opportunity to get off the mountain? There's definitely a part of me that's like, let's get off this God forsaken mountain. But there's also part of me that's like, I don't know, I grew up learning that there's like three types of fun. There's like type one fun that's fun while you're doing it. Type two fun that's like fun after the fact. And then type three fun, which is basically you don't enjoy it <laughs> and you don't enjoy it right after looking back. But then in like further hindsight, you're like, that was pretty awesome. And that was definitely one of my first experiences of type three fun. Thanks to the sun and some light wind, the rock dried quickly. A few pitches later, they stood on top of the Grand Teton. It was actually a really incredible summit. You know, it was a pretty special experience, you know, just the only ones on the mountain. That was the highest I had ever been. I'm like, this is pretty, this is pretty freaking cool. Careful not to push their luck too much further, they started their descent about 20 minutes later. They rappelled off the west side of the peak and scrambled back down to camp. They cooked dinner and watched more clouds billow in the distance. They got into their tents and it started to rain. We could still feel the wind lifting us up off the ground during the night, like coming up under the tent. And so there was not actually a lot of sleeping that happened that night. With three people in the tent, it was pretty snug. And so like the sides of the tent were like whipping you in the face all night. Yeah, when the morning came, we were all, like, really eager to get off the mountain. Oh, my gosh, it's the most beautiful day. We totally should have waited and done it that day. <laughs> I mean, it was, like, hot, like, sweaty hot, blue skies, no clouds. The team hiked out without incident. Heavy legs, but a light mood. They skirted what could have been a pretty bad situation, and they knew it. Michelle's immediate fears let go, but she still wondered if they pushed too far. What if he never wants to go up in the mountains again? Because he had this terrifying experience <laughs> in his first big mountain trip. And what if we've, like, ruined it for him? <laughs> the Baker family debriefed about the trip many times over the following years. Michelle recognized the pressure they put on themselves to summit. Living in Texas, having a finite amount of time to get a climb in, it's easy to catch summit fever. I think looking back, I think I probably would have said, let's wait and try to summit the next day. Let's just wait it out. And, and even in the situation where we got to where we were, where we could start to see the clouds in the distance, I think I would have listened to my gut because my gut was definitely telling me this was something to be concerned about, but I ignored it. And I'm just glad that it didn't have worse repercussions than it actually ended up having. It definitely gave me a certain respect for, you know, just the sheer power of like the forces of nature. I'm like, if, things had gone differently, like we could have all been, you know, wiped off the mountain. And 
we're very fortunate and I would say I'll never underestimate the importance of emergency gear again and the importance of a pack of Twix. Michelle and John want their kids to respect mountains, to revere them, but also to understand the risks and dangers they pose. Michelle hears Logan talking about risk as a teenager now and hopes the Teton climb helped him develop his own point of view. I want him to be thinking about this stuff and not be so concerned about his objective or about what, you know, like the social pressure that he might feel from people that he goes to do this stuff with, to feel like he has a voice to speak up if there's something he has a concern about. For Michelle, the outdoors have always been a way of learning about and pushing herself. It started with finding her limits with her five siblings, building forts, riding bikes through the woods, and competing in self-imposed challenges like walking across sharp rocks barefoot. When she met John, he matched her spirit, and they found so much joy adventuring together. Michelle hopes that her children will thrive through time spent in the outdoors. For them to have to experience the joy that it brings to be out there and to, to be empowered in themselves and their abilities that they can accomplish the things that they set their mind to, that they can do hard things, that they can overcome adversity and difficulty. And I think it translates into so many other areas of your life when you learn that about yourself. And as for the next in line for the Grand Teton, McKinley, she's undecided. The stories from the trip in 2015 haven't exactly sold her on the idea of climbing the mountain. That's a hard line to find between kind of making your kids do something that you know is going to be good for them and they're not going to, that in the long run they'll appreciate, but at the time they really don't want to do. It's hard because you really think that you know best as the parent. Our main dream for our kids is to grow up and be kind and loving and good citizens to be effective partners and and parents in their own right. But, you know, we obviously also want to instill in them a love and a, and a respect for the earth and the outdoors and, and to be able to share those experiences with their own families someday. Kind of a generational thing. We learned it from our parents and we'd like to pass it down if we can. It feels like I've kind of been forced to love mountains, but at the same time, I've just inadvertently gotten the you know experience and love of them to where I could keep climbing mountains and I want to take my kids up mountains and just you know keep the tradition going because it's truly one of the most like beautiful views and like unique experiences you can have. And Michelle and John's youngest, Luca, at this point, he's 12, and they're in discussions about climbing the Grand next summer. We need to get moving with practicing the skills he needs and that sort of thing, if that's something he wants to do. So I think maybe 14 is a better age now that I think about it. Thank you, Michelle and Logan and the entire Baker family for sharing your story. 
Our stories, they come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Bradley Carter, Kai Engel, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists on our website. This episode was produced by Ashley Langholz and Cordelia Zars. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.